Okay, we're back. Um, hi, Katie. Hi, Mary. Uh, we are Sans Sarah today. Uh, welcome back to the Projections Podcast. We are recording a special episode here, uh, myself with Katie Devella, um, who we've just watched uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and we wanted to review it because it's a new release uh, by a director that we both love very much, Celine Siama, and I thought Katie would be the perfect uh, guest for this episode. So I met Katie at the Freud Museum, um, and yeah, we've been good pals ever since. Um, it turns out we're birthday twins. We're both, <laughs> <laughs> we're both born on the 28th of October, a day we share with uh, the wonderful Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix, who you adore, and yeah. Julia Roberts, who I adore. True, yes, <laughs> Julia as well. Um, so it's, I feel like we're very Scorpio heavy on this podcast, which I appreciate. I appreciate Sarah's a Scorpio as well. We're both double Scorpios. Sarah's yes. a Scorpio and Celine Siama is also a Scorpio. Amazing, amazing. We're a good company. Um, so Katie is a writer and a cinephile and uh, I'll invite you, Katie, to tell our listeners a bit more about yourself. Thank you so much, Mary, and thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, so I am really interested in applying a psychoanalytic theories to cinema, um, and specifically how they relate to female desire. Um, themes that really interest me are female desire and specifically queerness and spectatorship. Um, and that's why Portrait of a Lady on Fire is really like Christmas for me. <laughs> Yeah, it hits so many marks uh, based on that descriptor you just gave. Um, and I feel like it's exciting to have a director like that who is actually, yeah, so consciously trying to approach female desire, which is really exciting. It's true. Um, and I know that we both watched uh, Water Lilies. Yes. Um, and that was a film that when I first saw it, I thought, wow, like immediately obvious that Celine is very, very in touch with the unconscious you know like just the fact that her work is so stripped down there's a very sparse script mm-hmm. she really relies on the expressiveness of her performers and creating an ambiance and a mood and it's exciting to see that she's really kind of continuing that approach uh, I get to see her other films but really looking forward to discovering more by her mm, it's true um, something that's really interesting about Yama's work is that she she continues themes throughout her work and she seems to really develop them and she she works with the same cinematographers That's as right. well the same and the same person who produces the scores exactly well, so she, yeah. so all of her films are about the production of art and in her films we see her producing art with a group of women and it's it's a really special kind of like dual production wow yeah it's as if she creates a collective of women and through the support and probably inspiration that she attains from these collaborators, she actually attains her own vision and like she develops her own vision through that. Yes. It's really good. It's like a, it's like a positive feedback loop of feminine creativity. Yes. Somehow in her work, I, I feel inspired to say it's the reversal of the muse so we we think a lot in cinema about the male director with a female actress who is his muse Mm. um and with siyama we see a female director 
um, who does not treat the actress as her muse, but rather as her equal. And together they create a body of work um, as a collective. And we also see that within the film. Um, I don't, we're doing spoilers, right? Yes, we're doing spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into the film, I'm sure, but just a little sneak wow. peek. We see, we see these two women pick up a paintbrush together, and I think that that's something that's really um, prominent in her work and why I think we both really love her as a director. Absolutely, really well said. I, I totally agree. Um, at which point it's probably a good idea to give a little bit of a an exposition of this film. Please, um, I'm dying. Yeah, so basically, um, this is shot on an isolated island uh, in Brittany. Uh, the period that is being depicted is the end of the 18th century, and we see a woman, a female painter, who is commissioned to paint a wedding portrait of a young woman, uh, Eloise and she's played by uh, Adele Anel. Um, and Adele was also in Water Lilies. So she's sustained a, a, a kind of working relationship with Céline Siena, and I believe they were also lovers. It's true. It's true. And we, we haven't brought the goods today. We're not really sure if they're <laughs> together right now. We know that they were together and then they broke up. Yes. And that they appeared <laughs> together at the, the Greve in Paris for International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not sure. Um, I've yeah. had contradicting sources from various French friends. And they also stormed out of the César Awards together yeah. recently. <laughs> and, um, Roman Polanski won the César Award. The Césars are like the French Oscars. It's a mm -hmm. pretty big deal. And uh, Polanski won for his film J'accuse. And, uh, I'm shaking my head, listeners. I'm shaking my head. <laughs> they love the venue together. So what's intriguing is that Eloise, so her situation is an intriguing one because she seems to come from a family where there's been a lot of trauma and loss. Mm. Uh, her sister um, apparently took her own life, jumped off the cliff and died. Mm -hmm. um, so their mother, who's an Italian lady, um, she's quite concerned now about Eloise and she doesn't want her going and wandering off alone, taking walks by herself. She is, insists that, she, that Eloise is chaperoned. So when she commissions this painter, who's also the daughter of uh, a male painter who, took, who, who, who painted her portrait, um, so there's a link there. Um, initially, she tells her that you're not to tell Eloise that you're in fact painting her because she won't pose for you. Mm -hmm. um, she refuses to pose and she made it a difficult task for the previous uh, portrait artist. So you're just to accompany her on her walks and just observe her and just paint her from memory as opposed to having her pose in front of you. That was so interesting because it just right away created this like drama of potentially this budding romance between the two women, but the painter is requested to play, to, you know, to kind of be an accessory yeah. to Eloise's marriage. And it's just so, so tragic right off the bat. Yeah. What did you think about that? I thought it was an absolutely fascinating script writing decision on Siama's part, mm -hmm. um, because it essentially means that uh, Marianne will have to look a lot at Eloise. <laughs> and it reminded me so much of the theorist Laura Mulvey, um, who, who wrote about 
the phrase, uh, the woman's to be look at, to be looked atness, mm-hmm. um, and she's the one who kind of wrote a lot about the female gaze. This phrase that we're hearing a lot about these days, mm-hmm. um, and I'd love to talk to you more about Mary. Sure. Um, this is her essay, "Visual Pleasures in Narrative in Narrative Cinema." Narrative exactly. Cinema. Uh-huh. So I think it was really smart for um, Siama to kind of frame the story in the way such that Marianne would have to look a lot <laughs> at Eloise in order to capture her portrait, um, literally to capture her essence. She would need to look at her. Um, and That's then right. later, in, when they're kind of uh, peeling back the layers of their love, it's unclear why she was gazing so much at her. That's right. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting kind of callback to film theory. At least wow. my kind of like psychoanalytic film theory heart was beating really hard. <laughs> That's so true. You're absolutely right. In, in, in a way, it's sort of giving license to the potential erotic uh, value of the female gaze. Exactly. That actually the, the desirous gaze you know, has a function as well. Exactly. The idea is not to strip away cinema from the of you know of um, the scopophilic value of mm. the pleasure of looking. Mm-hmm. It's to actually democratize the gaze across the genders, so that the men are not the exclusive bearers of the gaze, of the eroticized gaze. That women have access to this as well. Exactly. Wow. And here is my hot hot fresh out the oven take. Let's, let's hear it. I love this, I love this scalding hot take. <laughs> so I think that with this film, we can finally put the final nail in the coffin when it comes to discussions about the impossibility of the female gaze mm. or about the passive female in cinema. Because obviously this film is a masterpiece. It is. But I think that with it, Siyama is also delivering a really powerful manifesto about female desire and more specifically about um, women desiring women. Yes. Um, because I've seen a lot of articles and headlines on the internet, a lot of them written by men, mm-hmm. about how this is a film about the female gaze. And I'm here to tell you that, sure, this is a film about the female gaze, but I think this is a film about so much more than that. This is a film about queerness, goddammit. Like, yeah. <laughs> did you see it? <laughs> um, and this is a film about wow. grief and trauma. This is a film about the revolutionary spirit of rejecting compulsory heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. This is a film about the ways in which patriarchy constricts and contains women, even when it is seemingly absent from our lives. Mm-hmm. And of course, wow. this is a film about um, the purity of new love. It's a, such a romantic film. It's and so romantic. I loved it so much. <laughs> yeah, me too. I really loved it. Um, and I'm so glad we both got to see it on the big screen. Because mm. I feel like that is the, definitely the, the mode of spectatorship for this. Because it just is so absorbing. And every frame is so intentionally constructed and exquisitely composed. Absolutely. Yeah. Question for you about the cinematography. Uh-huh. I have a potentially controversial and poorly informed take. <laughs> How do you feel about the fact that it was digitally rendered? Ah, as opposed to 35 mil. Mm. Ooh. I don't know. I'm kind of of two minds about that. 
On the one hand, I think that um, these new technologies really open up possibilities for filmmakers who might otherwise get you know, ignored by the studio system and um, sort of neglected to audiences that desperately need them. Mm. Uh, so I am all for it, whatever, you know, any means necessary, the kind of Malcolm X <laughs> kind of mantra right, of right. making, um, make it so that we see it. But on the other hand, the setting and the location of where they were and how luscious every single scene was constructed did actually command maybe a traditional uh, filming method. And mm. you're right, like I was almost a bit nostalgic mm-hmm. for wanting that beautiful cinematic texture. Mm-hmm. What did you think? I wanted some soft orange hues. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't lie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the clarity of the digital uh, rendering kind of gave me like... Um, like documentary vibes and I, mm. I didn't love that but I also think that I've read that the cinematography has been praised and I, I'm really not an expert in this so mm. that's just my sort of uh, subjectivity coming through wow. <laughs> no I agree I agree it, it did leave that especially in those moments when uh, Marianne has these visions of Eloise oh, her white dress let's talk more about that oh my god what, what, what came up for you with that yeah. So I was trying to connect, I, di- I didn't understand it while it was happening, and I was mm. like, what is this? Because it's like this apparition, almost like a ghost, Yeah. even though Eloise is right there in the house. So it was almost, because the, the, the visions were so exquisitely lit, so it looked very um, like phantom-like. Eloise appeared very pale and almost like caught in moonlight, yeah. glowing, and... It was startling. There was an element of fear attached to it as well. Mm. It seemed very hallucinatory, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I thought it represented some kind of lack because mm. she disappeared. Yep. She vanished so quickly. It was only until the end of the film when we actually see that Eloise is being fitted in this white gown. And it's the moment when Marianne is actually leaving the premises. Mm-hmm. She's finally finished with her portrait and leaving. And Eloise runs after her and says, turn around. And that's the final vision of the two of them looking at each other before Marianne leaves. That it made me think of, because running through it, there's a little bit of a reference to uh, Orpheus. <gasps> yes. And there's, because it's, 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 it's the same signifiers of turning around and looking at your lover mm. when you're condemned to do that. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're prohibited to do that. Mm-hmm. What did you think? I feel like it's all connected somehow, but I'm not yes. articulating it <laughs> in, a, in a comprehensive way. Okay, so when I say that I think this is a film about compulsory heterosexuality, what I mean is, I, I guess I'd like to unpack that a little bit. Um, this is a theory that was first um, articulated by Adrian Rich, and it basically states that um, in a heteronormative world, um, we are kind of compelled to choose heterosexuality. Um, and this is obviously the case for people like uh, Marianne and Eloise. And it feels kind of like Marianne has chosen um, quite controversially to not do that. 
She's chosen life as a worker instead. And that feels quite powerful and rebellious. But that does not seem feasible for Eloise at all. She is resigned to her, her life and her marriage because her sister has died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels traumatic and sad. And I saw those visions of um, Eloise in a white wedding gown as a specter of heterosexuality. I saw these images of Eloise in a white wedding gown as a specter of the inevitability of her marriage to Marianne. Their love is pure, but it is fleeting because of patriarchy um, and heteronormativity and heteronormativity it, it feels like symbolism for some reason it felt kind of like death drive yes <laughs> wow do you it's know what I mean if, almost as if Eloise has come to terms with her death sentence exactly wow okay and so she's begrudgingly accepted her fate mm-hmm. um, and this that, was the the oh, basis yeah. of their argument that's right. Their final argument, which was very difficult to kind of understand, um, yeah. even in the French, because the way that they speak to each other is so bare bones. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you guys saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Um, I think that those, those, um, those images were... Symbols of grief, Marianne's grief and Eloise's grief. Of course, they were only seen by Marianne, um, but they were kind of premonitions of what was to come and uh, symbols of the grief. Uh, tragedy. Of, yeah, the tragedy of, of, heteros- of, of the patriarchy, yeah. of the fact that their love cannot be of the fact that they live in a world that doesn't support their desires. Mm. Um, And I think that Siama made an interesting choice by including this kind of fantastical element. I don't know, do you think that it worked? I do, because it was so, it really stood out compared to the rest of the style of the filmmaking, which was tried to stay quite realistic, like, um, apart, there were one or two moments where things looked very dreamlike. Mm. So when they were gathered around the fire and there was at least these ladies singing mm-hmm. and we, the camera shoots Eloise through the flames and she looks so warm and glowing in this, in this orange hue, actually. Um, yes. <laughs> not quite orange enough for our taste, but, um, <laughs> but she really looked like radiant and when her dress caught fire, like that to me looked very, it, it kind of took my breath away, the way that it was shot because it looked so dreamlike and uncanny. Yes. Um, and also there was other moments like when Marianne is studying this previous portrait that, or an attempt of a portrait of Eloise, mm. but there's no head, mm-hmm. there's no face. Mm-hmm. It's like the rest of her body is depicted, but. It, there's a blank for her face. And that's quite, that was quite terrifying, actually. I agree. Like a headless woman. It was a terrifying moment. Yeah. Almost as if, like, in the perception of the portrait, art, the portrait artist, a woman who doesn't respond erotically to the male is, like, 
a mad woman, like a headless woman, mm. you know? Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, like a, like, a, like a nightmare object. So he couldn't depict her, you know? It was too terrifying to look at her because she didn't reflect his desirous gaze. And mm. so when, in the, in the moment when Marianne is studying this previous attempt of a portrait, this, this terrifying depiction, um, she kind of casts her candlelight along mm. the canvas to really study everything, all the brush strokes. And then it catches fire, mm -hmm. and it's at the place of her heart. Mm. It's like her heart was on fire, you know? Eloise's heart caught fire. And so there were little moments like that throughout the film, all often connected with the flame that appeared very dreamlike. So when those apparitions, those visions appeared of Eloise, actually in a very cool toned mm. uh, light, um, the opposite of warm, you know, like an ice queen almost, mm. like caught in a sculpture of ice, um, they, they did stand out. And I think it was the right decision to use fantasy and hallucinatory dreamlike imagery. Actually, I thought of another thing that I wanted to ask you about just on the topic of this. When they first get together and they have a snog, uh, prior to that, they're talking about, you know, they're, they're kind of asking each other if, they, if they've thought about it each other or mm. they've fantasized. And uh, Eloise asks Marianne, did you dream about me? Mm, I remember said, that. Right? And then she says, no, I thought about you. Yeah. And that really jumped out at me. Same. Yeah? <laughs> I was like, ah, the analytic school of thought. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought that was such a romantic, powerful thing to say because it's like, she's basically saying, no, you were not in my unconscious. I, de I deliberately yeah. conjured you in my thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I brought you out of my unconscious and manifested you in my mind. And I thought, oh, okay, I think this is like, top line <laughs> seduction stuff like I love it I thought it was beautiful yeah and it was so beautiful how she said do all lovers feel like they're inventing something new yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're melting that was beautiful yeah, yeah. I think like uh, Siama's done something really special with this film um, and it's worth noting that when you put the, ham the camera in trustworthy hands mm -hmm. to depict um love between two women, you can, um, okay, here's what I mean to say. If we take a walk down memory, memory lane and think about what kind of films have depicted uh, lesbian love before, mm -hmm. it's mostly absolute trash. Mm -hmm. That's because of the ways in which film has historically operated as both sexist and homophobic. Mm -hmm. um, the camera and the scripts have almost always been in the hands of straight and cisgendered men. Um, and that means that the lesbian has usually been relegated to the realm of the fantasy. Mm. Um, so lesbian self-representation has been pretty much impossible. Yeah. This is one of the first times that this has happened in mainstream cinema. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes this film so important. Um, 
because self-representation is important on a macro, external, real-world level, but it's also important in the inner world of its characters um, whose subjectivities are treated authentically. So when we talk about these special moments between the two main characters, constructing, uh, inventing a, a love language together, wow. uh, it is fantastic. Um, and that's what happens when we, we give the camera to, to women. <laughs> um, it's really special. And it stands out to me if we compare it to films like Blue is the Warmest Color. I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> the contrast. Yeah. Um, what a striking difference yeah Um, I mean with that film we had actresses who felt like they were being treated poorly on set yeah they said they were being bullied and so was the whole crew exactly people were being underpaid and like harassed Uh, yeah that's badgered on the set Mm mm-hmm yeah yeah and that was also a film about producing art uh, in many ways, uh, the Lea Seydoux character was making portraits of her lover, Adele. <laughs> um, so it's interesting how these are, both, these are both films about portraiture. Um, these are both coming-of-age stories. Uh, one was directed by a man. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and one was directed by a lesbian. Um, and yeah, I've, I've listened to a lot of interviews with uh, Celine Siama, and she really takes this uh, very seriously. Um, there, I listened to this one interview with Sean Fennessy, mm-hmm. um, and he was saying how uh, not since the film Carol, directed by Todd Haynes, mm-hmm. have people really built a cult to a, a film like this, mm-hmm. uh, like a kind of like the, the subgenre of lesbian film. Um, and she said, yeah, and I take, I take this responsibility quite seriously. And he asked her, what's a film that you built a cult to? And do you know what she said? What'd she say? Mulholland Drive. Oh my God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I thought it was impossible to love her more. Yeah. And here I am like, oh my God, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm really interested in this concept of, of genre building. Um, yeah. So in this very, very small, underrepresented genre of lesbian film, they basically fall into two buckets. Mm-hmm. So we've got the, uh, the film where it's essentially about the exploitative male gaze, mm-hmm. um, like Blue is the Warmest Color. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the, the film that essentially ends in either trauma or tragedy, yeah. the melodrama. It's very rare or nearly impossible for a film like this um, to be successful or to be funded mm. where a love story can just happen or subjectivities can just flourish and exist. Um, so I think uh, Siyama had to kind of sacrifice her budget quite a bit to allow this work to exist the way that she wants it to. And maybe that's why it's been rendered digitally and I shouldn't <laughs> I shouldn't um, <laughs> cast so much judgment on it. Um, but yeah, I think that's, um, I think she's really pushing the genre forward. And the fact that this film has um, been so successful is so important. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't have any facts about what the actual budget was for the film, but I do know that at the time of recording this episode, it's made nearly $10 million at the box office, which is no small feat for what's essentially an independent film. Yeah. 
Um, and this film talks about difficult things. There's yeah. an abortion scene. That's right. How did you feel about that? Oh, I had, I was not expecting anything like that at that moment. Um, I thought it was really great in the story that Marianne and Eloise are shown to befriend the lady or the young girl who works in the household. Um, she's a hired help and that they're quite good pals. They play cards together, they dine together and they mainly hang out together when Eloise's mother is away. Yes, they're forming some sort of utopia yeah. in her absence. Yeah. It's quite beautiful. Yeah, it was actually. It was really touching to see those moments. It's like, it's as if Eloise's mother is a character who's really internalized the patriarchy and mm. also some degree of misogyny. I would agree. And so, therefore, in her presence, they're often like they have their guard up and they don't really quite feel free and liberated to be themselves. But as soon as she's away for a few days, that's when they have this platform to kind of like let loose and just be very realistic and free-flowing with each other. And they discover that uh, this young girl has actually fallen pregnant. And they do all these like little rituals mm. to try and help her have a miscarriage, mm. uh, which I thought was interesting because it was an un unwanted pregnancy. I like the fact that this character who had... Who, you know, who wanted to um, not be pregnant, that her desire, like, was shown to be autonomous. Like, she mm -hmm. didn't appear conflicted. She had made her decision. I agree. And it wasn't kind of mired in anything moralistic about what she was doing. Like, she knew that she just didn't want to have this baby at this time. Mm. So eventually when they do accompany her to have an abortion um, at this woman's house, what really, I think more than anything, what startled me is if, is how it was shot because she was instructed to lay down on a bed and there were like kids on the bed. And yeah. There was a baby right there as well. Mm. And while she, the procedure was taking place and it seemed to be very harrowing and difficult, she held the baby's hand. Mm -hmm. And something about that was very reassuring to me and I don't know why like I can't quite express why but what did you what did you think of it I thought it was a really powerful scene um and I haven't seen a uh I haven't seen a non-problematic abortion scene since fast times at Ridgemont High <laughs> Which is, I think, maybe the best high school movie ever made. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I think I, I had this idea that she, she has this abortion procedure and she's surrounded by women and children and she's, she's crying during the procedure and holding this little baby's hand and there's a child helping the mother and she has her two, I mean, I wouldn't say friends, but these two other um, sister figures watching and helping in the background. Yeah. Um, it feels like a really special moment. It feels that she's confronting this traumatic moment head on. I'm struck that like oftentimes during abortion procedures, uh, there is a moralistic element and oftentimes women are shown pictures of babies as a way to keep them from getting abortions. Guilt them. Yes, but in this scenario, 
it's absolutely fine that there's a baby there and it's absolutely fine that she's getting an abortion. And this is what, the 1700s? Yeah. Wow. So exactly. uh, I think it was radical. Yeah, there are many radical acts in this film. Yeah, quite like quietly radical. Quietly radical, mm. like not actually acknowledged through language, mm. but it's just very much present in the scene. So it's as if it's saying that like her decision to have this abortion at this time is her decision alone, and whilst this is going on she can still be seen alongside a baby Mm. and there's affection and support Mm -hmm. in the room for her and there's no guilt there's no shame attached to what she's doing no shame at all exactly and like somehow that that um it's as if nature is also on her side Mm. because I just love that baby as well. Like, he was a great actor. (laughs) He just, he was emotive in just the right moment. And it was beautifully shot. And it was forgiving, you know? Mm. Um, Whereas, like, you're right. So many times in films, when that situation is depicted, there is a lot of implicit guilt Mm -hmm. that's, like, embedded in the composition of this scene Mm -hmm. so um if anything it just seemed like you know she was in control of her destiny and in doing so she was not shunned by her community and by nature she was supported Mm. yeah yeah i like that yeah it was a perhaps a bit of a a revisionist history on her part (laughs) or perhaps not Maybe they did a bit know. of a bit of uh, research. Maybe that was how it was done. Yeah, I, yeah. I would take a lot of comfort knowing that this is rooted in some historical practice. That this actually yeah. happened. Um, and the thing is, that's the beauty about uh, communities that build together and grow together organically despite an oppressive force like the patriarchy, mm. you know? They're compelled together because the support is not given elsewhere. And in these little pockets of community and collectivity, and so, you know, there's solidarity. Mm-hmm. And people are lifting each other up. And they're doing that because each of them has a knowledge that the support doesn't exist elsewhere. And I like that. And one thing that did not exist in this film was the presence of men. Yeah. (laughs) We do not know who got this character pregnant. Yeah. The only time we see men in this film is when they're um, on the boat with Marianne and they do not help her when her painting falls in the water. And then when some random guy picks up the painting to bring it back, and it's so jarring. They've been living in this kind of feminine utopia for about six days, um, like doing abortion rituals (laughs) and painting each other and smoking uh, hallucinogens and having sex and having the time of their lives. And then all of a sudden, there's this crude shot of a man having breakfast, and he's like, bonjour. And it's just like, whoa, and you're kind of like jolting in your seat like what's going on yeah, right like something so banal as just some guy at like breakfast table it just kind of like it's just it's such a rude awakening you're just like oh my god like what's going on you're you're suddenly like the bubbles just being burst yes and he takes the art away, takes the art away. so this film about the production of art 
uh, and he takes it away, which I think is quite striking. Um, but yeah, it's it's not the first film that she's made, which includes pretty much no men. It's obviously a an unsubtle decision, unsubtle directorial decision on her part. Yeah. Um, I've never heard her speak on that. I wouldn't be surprised if she hasn't. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting, this kind of little utopia she creates. Um, That's right. And then when further down the line, we see Marianne at a gallery. Aha! That there's also a lot of men around. Um, I don't know. So I think someone tried to mansplain her painting to her <laughs> or something. Yeah. <laughs> weird um so yeah i just thought that uh oh yes and in that moment as well they didn't realize that it was a female painter because she'd used her father's name mm-hmm. um and she's quite she's quite cunning isn't she like I she finds so. little ways to to manifest her vision mm-hmm. um like when she's questioned about nude models mm-hmm. and she says that all oh, women are not allowed to paint male nudes Mm-hmm. But she says, I have my ways. I still do it, <laughs> but like in secret. So she tries, you know, she, she's, Marianne is an artist who's very conscious about sidestepping the obstacles that are placed in her path. Like she is very industrious and she's, she, you know, she, she's very resourceful. Um, she's a worker as she's well. A worker. This film, she works nonstop. Yeah. I like seeing all the, beautiful shots and footage of the different stages of how a painting is made and the sketching and even just the sound design you really hear the charcoal on the canvas and you hear the passage of the paintbrush on the canvas like I just love how textured all of that was I agree it was so beautiful yeah yeah it was stunning there was like very startling images as well like the way it ended Marianne mm-hmm. discovers that painting of Eloise with a child mm-hmm. and there in the painting she's holding a book mm-hmm. which is turned to page 28 and is clearly depicted I'm so happy it's the number 28 because it's our birthday oh I didn't even think about that thank you so much for bringing that up more connection it was for us it was for us she it did it for us, us. <laughs> Which was so romantic because obviously that was the page that um, <laughs> where um, Marianne painted herself in the nude. Oh, I'm um, blushing. So beautiful. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, like that's the true power of, you know, that's the authentic power of true love where even years after the fact, if the love was genuine and it was reciprocated, um, Irrespective of whether it was allowed to blossom or whether it was cut short um, despite the intentions of the lovers, it stays with you. Mm-hmm. Like now, Eloise, you know, she's willfully entered this marriage, which, you know, probably fills her with a lot of sadness, but through it all, she holds on to this memory. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of meaning for her. Yeah, and I'm shocked that she, she said to Marianne in bed that the image would be reproduced to her ad infinitum. And then, in fact, the she reproduced the image for Marianne in yeah. painting form, um, which is 
very romantic, but also remind it's very Lacanian somehow. <laughs> Reminds me of the mirror stage. She was creating that image in a mirror. Yeah, um, in a mirror that was placed over like the groin area mm-hmm. as well. So it was very eroticized. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so much to unpack. I'm oh not sure God. if we've got the we <laughs> the time. <laughs> but yeah. Wow. That's so true. It is very mirror stage because she was she was reproducing a vision of herself through love, mm-hmm. right? Through the lens of love. I wonder whether Siama um, found it challenging to make, a, to make this film, because from what I read, in fact, um, the film was made just, bef- just after the end of her relationship with Adele Anel, mm. and I wonder whether um, it impacted any of her decisions, you know, because actually they remain very amicable, and we know that they're still friends now, or maybe more. <laughs> we <don't> know. <laughs> We'd like to think they are. So it makes it even more powerful in that regard that they were able to sustain their collaboration mm. despite the end of their relationship, their romantic relationship. Yeah, and I'm struck as I kind of was hinting to earlier. There's a scene at the very end of the film where um, Eloise picks up Marianne's paintbrush and starts to paint with her and mix the colors. And they talk about, when will we know when the painting's finished? Yeah. Um, and it feels kind of like a double entendre. Uh-huh. Maybe it's a, a little bit about their love as well. Uh-huh. The love in the film, maybe it's a little bit about their working relationship. They're producing art within the film. And the film itself is a work of art that they're producing in collaboration. So I would argue that we're not, they're not sure when it's finished either. <laughs> and that's something they're negotiating as well. Wow. <laughs> also, like we were both saying afterwards, there's definitely a Scorpio streak <laughs> running through this film. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think this film, I really hope that this film opens doors for Siyama, more doors for Siyama, of course. But I also hope that it sends a really strong message to people in Hollywood that um, more women directors should be funded and that uh, we can move beyond discussions about if or if not the female gaze is valid or useful or important and that female desire can and should be depicted as as valid and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And also um, the people will come come watch it in cinemas and and people will fill up seats um, and not just women. (laughs) She's facilitating the place that we want to get to where women making films ought not be regarded as like a curiosity or Mm. like some weird freak accident like oh you're a woman and you made a film how did that happen you know (laughs) like she's really um, an auteur you know, who is commanding her vision and manifesting it as she sees fit. And hopefully, the more this happens, the quicker we'll get to a place where uh, female filmmakers will not, will not be so fetishized. I completely agree. And treated as a curiosity. It'll just be like, you know, we discuss the, the important essential components as opposed to you know, this ghettoized perception of women in the film industry. Like, mm, yeah. like they're, oh, they're, they're, just, they're just this little subcategory, but 
really the, 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 the main talk of the town is the boys, you know, what are they doing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm excited, and I think I predict great things for her uh, going forward. I think she's also, at the, I always look at the pace of when a director releases, and I'm excited by her because I feel like she's, she's done very well in terms of producing films over the, over the last few years. We, have, we don't have to have a hu- very long wait, and that always fills me with hope. Because mm. I'm forever waiting for people like, you know, I happen to really love Darren Aronofsky. And I oh, really? Not, he's not quick <laughs> enough for me. Like, I'm like, when is the next one? When is the next one? I'm always, like, refreshing his IMDb. <laughs> yeah, because I love Black Swan. Mm. Um, and actually all his films, to be honest. So, any closing remarks on this film or any final thoughts that you wanted to share? I'm really glad that we got to see this film. I think it's so important, and I think we should fund more Scorpio directors. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I'm all for that. Um, I want to see Scorpio directors. I want to see Scorpio characters on film. Mm. We're, like, proudly Scorpio. Did Did you ever see Drive? You know, of Ryan course. Gosling, right? And his jacket, like the Scorpio. A very Scorpio. Maybe we should start uh, an offshoot podcast about Scorpio films. Well, I'm sure Sarah would be all on board with herself. So, um, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Katie. This feels like a good place to end our conversation, but I'm sure we could have gone on for like at least a few more hours because there's so much to say about this film. But I'm glad I got to see it with you. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So if you are online and you want people to know about your work, uh, is there any particular platform that showcases your interests or what you're up to that you want to share? Uh, yeah, sure. So feel free to follow me on Instagram at K underscore Davella. So that's D-A-V-E-L-L-A. Perfect. And send me a message if you want to talk more about films. Amazing. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.